0: Once again, perhaps for the last time, David is tested. This is the 47th sermon in the series "Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory," an exposition on the second book of Samuel. We turn now to Second Samuel and chapter 24. Second Samuel and chapter 24, the first 17 verses, verses 1 through 17. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be in hundredfold and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aor on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad and toward Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahim Had she, and they came to Dan Jan and about to Zidon, and came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king, and there were in Israel. 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him. After that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or that there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Ar-Una, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against My father's house. James, writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. James, in chapter 1, 13 through 15. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word, uh, we once again admonish this day. Now, in order to remain consistent with the historical timeline of King David, We must now skip to chapter 24, rather than continuing on to chapter 22 and 23. As you will remember, we first had looked at, last week, chapter 21, but now we skip to chapter 24. Because if we are to be perfectly consistent with that historical timeline, we would have to conclude that the final portion of 2 Samuel chapters in the life of David should go something like this. At the end of chapter 21, we saw that David was well stricken in years and no longer able to fight on the battlefield. We also saw that as a result, a number of his men rose to the call to battle and fought against the Philistines, defeating them and their champions Succoring David and calling him off of the battlefield. This proved that there were those men in Israel who were battle ready. That was an important point to that story. They were battle ready and they fought with the Philistines, defeating them and their champions. At the end of chapter 21, Israel, we've seen already that they were victorious, once again, over the Philistines. Now, if we move from chapter 21 to chapter 22 directly, we would read that David at chapter 22 is rehearsing all that the Lord had done for him during his life as sort of a last will and testament, a recap of his life. Chapter 22, if you read it very carefully, is a psalm of praise, recapping everything that the Lord had done and how he had been so faithful. Then chapter 23 opens with what is called the last words of David. If these were his last words, why then are they not the last words in the book of Samuel? Why are they in chapter 23 and not in chapter 24? Why is there still in chapter 24 another chapter of testing if chapter 23 were his last words? I believe that chapter 23 is the final chapter and not chapter 24, even though that is the order in which it is placed in the canon. I also believe that chapter 24 chronologically might even come before chapter 22 and chapter 23. Therefore, it seems logical, if we're going to be historically consistent, that chapter 23 is the final chapter of 2 Samuel and not chapter 24, even though that is the order which we find it placed in the scriptures. And so... In order to continue, as I would like to continue chronologically, we will now move into chapter 24 to see how David once again, and perhaps for the last time, is tested of God. Therefore, by inspiration of God, we now move to chapter 24, where David is tested once again. Now, let's consider for a moment the text and how this fleshes out. Chapter 24 continues with God's grooming of David through still another testing period, whereby there was now, because of his sin, a plague is being brought upon the land because of David's insistence upon numbering the army of Israel and Judah. And by this time, David had pretty much conquered the nations round about. Why now, at this juncture, was he going to number the people of Israel, the army. He had conquered the nations round about Jerusalem and for all intents and purposes had become the dominion king for the glory of God. That was his plan, to become the dominion conqueror. And that's what he did. There was no reason to doubt that God was with him. He had people come up through the ranks. He had Abishai and others defeating the giants. He was totally victorious. Why now prove his strength by numbering the armies. There was no reason to doubt God since God had proven time and time again that he would deliver Israel from their enemies as long as Israel was faithful and obedient to God's law. And yet even though God had promised to make David's people more numerous as the sand of the seashore, David still wanted to take a census. David wanted to take a census on his army, numbering the army in order to calculate their strength by their numbers. Now, while the numbering of the army was not forbidden, you see, sometimes we read this, oh, David is numbering the army, this is a bad thing. No, no, no. The numbering of the army was never forbidden. It was the motivation behind the numbering of the army. We should never calculate our strength by the sheer number in our party. And that's one of the, the lessons here. Because it's never about numbers. Victory does not come through numbers. I always say that, Jesus conquered the world with 12, and one of them was a the devil. So victory does not come by numbers, it comes by faith. It comes by the working of God through faith. One man, trusting God, is worth 10,000 valiant men. This account has caused many to misunderstand the reality of what actually happened to David and why. And what we see is a seeming contradiction when we read these accounts, because they are shown to us in two different books, one in 2 Samuel and the other in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And it seems as if there's a a contradiction here with the Scriptures. Because in 2 Samuel in chapter 24, the Scripture clearly says that it was God who was moving David to number the army. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, there's some confusion. Because the scripture very clearly says that it is the adversary, and the word is used, Satan, that is just literally the word adversary. It says that it is the adversary that is moving David to number Israel and Judah. In Second Samuel 24, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the nation of Israel once again. This leads us to believe that even though God had blessed Israel with so many victories, and further blessed them by reestablishing their king and their kingdom, they still angered God. For whatever reason, whether it was their pride, now they have defeated all of the giants, they've defeated the Philistines, maybe it was a lack of faith, maybe they thought they had the strength, maybe they were not thinking about being obedient, because now they had the dominion, they didn't have to continue in fidelity. For whatever reason, God is now angered against Israel. In 1 Chronicles 21, the adversary provokes David to number Israel, but it does not say that the reason for the numbering of Israel was the result of God's anger against David per se. Now, of course, as we will see, God is then going to be angry with David, and David is going to confess that he did make a mistake by numbering the army, but it was not the numbering per se, and I want to make that very clear. It was not the numbering. It was the motivation behind the numbering. It was God's displeasure, fundamentally, initially, against Israel. We see this clearly in verse 1. In fact, it seems as if David is being used as Israel's adversary, even at this point. So God moves David against Israel. He becomes the antagonist. God's plan was to move David to number the army of Israel and Judah. We see this in verse 2. But the first question that must be asked and then answered is, did God move David or, as 1 Chronicles said, did Satan move David? Well, the common interpretation is that God used Satan to tempt David. Then why does it say that God himself tempted David? You see, my understanding is that God directly tested David, becoming David's adversary, because that's literally what the word Satan means. And so in an effort to bring chastisement upon Israel, God acts as the adversarial antagonist in order to move David against Israel. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, we also see that the Lord Jesus Christ in Numbers 22.22 is acting as an adversary against Balaam, and the word used there is the word Satan again. So it's basically an adversarial relationship. We see Jehovah identifying himself as both the adversary and the enemy against wickedness and wicked men, as well as an adversary and an enemy against Israel when they go apostate in the book of Lamentations. So it depends on what the situation is. God would say, I'm going to be an adversary against my adversaries. I'm going to be an enemy against my enemies. So I believe at this point, the provocation of David was directly from God acting as an antagonist for the particular purpose of judging Israel for a violation of God's law. First Chronicles is simply identifying God, the lawgiver, as Israel's adversary. In 2 Samuel, he is identified as God, and in 1 Chronicles, he's identified as the adversary. Now, interestingly enough, the language of 1 Chronicles, where it says Satan stood up against Israel, is the very same phraseology as Zechariah 3 where God's law, identified as the adversary, stood up against Joshua the high priest, a representation of the Lord Jesus as he bears the sin of his people to accuse him to the father. And so there's no contradiction between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles whatsoever. Let's consider for a moment the provocation. How did God provoke David? Well, James tells us that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It probably didn't take God much prodding because David now, he's the victorious king. He's got total dominion. He's got people rising up behind him. They've killed all of the giants that were part of the Goliath's generations and taken over the Philistines. He was probably feeling pretty good about himself. Look at what we've done. Usually it's look at what God's done through us. But maybe he was thinking, look at what we've done. You see, all God had to do to provoke David is to lift his hand of restraint from David. And that's all God has to do with us. If he would just lift his hand of restraint from us, we would go headlong into sin. This is why we have to be so humble and so careful to fear God and pray constantly, Lord, have mercy upon me, that I would not go astray. Look after me. Expose any presuppositions of sin in my mind. Anything that's presumptuous in my life. Because once God lifted his hand from David, as he did with Bathsheba, the king would do what any natural king would do. And what would David want to do? Figure out how powerful his army really was. Theologians have accused David of not trusting God, assuming that David's conceit got the better of him, and he called for Joab to number the people. Now, the objection to this conclusion is, if God provoked David, which 2 Samuel clearly states, then how could God be angry with David for doing what God provoked him to do? This is why it is so much easier to blame it on the satanic being. But this was a test to see, what is David's motive? God was testing David, while at the same time chastising Israel. And this is... Exactly what God did in the garden. He set up a testing scenario to see if Adam would rebel. Remember what God gave Adam. Everything. And if Adam would have obeyed, maybe God would have given him more. Remember what he said to David way back after he sinned with Bathsheba. He said, if you would have been obedient and not sinned, and you wanted more, I would have given you more. And I think about that so often. God has given us so much, but if we are obedient, God will even bless us more. God was testing Adam as he is testing David, full well knowing he would do what he would do in order to show mankind just how much he needed God. So David is being taught yet another lesson in humility and how much he must rely on God for all of his obedience and holiness. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. How many things can we do without Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And sometimes we forget that. And this is why it's so important in our daily lives, in our meditation, in our morning prayer, pray that we would walk circumspectly with the Lord because without His guidance, without His Spirit at work energizing us, we can do nothing. We think that we can do some things without God. We think that we don't need God's aid. But according to this verse, that idea is inaccurate. The fact is, as the scriptures declare, we live and move and have our being in Him. We breathe and function as a result of His upholding hand. The simple digesting of food is a result of His sustaining mercy. We can do nothing without Him. We can do nothing without Him. And even though the Apostle says that we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us, we can do nothing unless Christ is strengthening us and working in us and through us. And when it is our time to pass from this life to the next, it is at that time when God no longer sustains our physical life, it is at that time when our biological life ends, and God is once again showing David how much David needs him, while at the same time bringing a chastising judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now there's a very important lesson here. David's victories, all of his victories, all of his exploits were historically and supernaturally phenomenal. His fighting of the giant, it was, it was, it was supernatural. It was a phenomena. A shepherd boy with a sling and a stone, killing the champion of the Philistines. But once he forgot that it was the Lord's doing, he sinned. We can never be lifted up with pride or trust in ourselves, especially when God does great and wonderful things to us and for us, showing us that our victories are the result of his actions alone. The blessings of God are to be used to humble us, not puff us up. Whatever we have, whatever we've been able to accomplish, it's not of us, it's of God, and we have to be humbled. So when we do great things, and this is why sometimes the pulpits become places of pride and tyranny, because the preacher thinks, well, look how much of an academic I am. Look how much of the scriptures I know. I know types and figures. I can expound the best of... It's because of God. God. It's not because of the preacher. It's not because of the theologian. And that's why sometimes we have to embrace the humbling effects of chastisement, especially if we're going to be faithful as Christians, especially as pastors. We must be in a constant mindset that we deserve nothing, We can do nothing, Well, we do deserve one thing, and it's only the wrath of God. But by the grace of God and the mediation of Christ, we don't get what we deserve. We can do nothing of ourselves. Sadly, however, too often when God blesses us, we take that as a sign that we're special. And that's expression of His love. And that is true. God blesses us as an expression of His love. Instead of the reality that it's giving us this blessing that we may glorify Him because we are blessed. And everything that God does is a test. The prophet says, don't give me too much that I would forget you, but don't give me too little that I steal and blaspheme. God continues to test us to see if we will mortify our pride in humble thanksgiving, contentment, and service. The problem with David at this point is he was not content David is now being tested to number the people. And we see this in verse 2. For the king said unto Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even unto Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. Why would he need to know that? He was just victorious over everybody. Now Joab is surprised. Joab's surprised response to the king's request tells us that David should have known that to number Israel because of the motivation behind the numbering of Israel was a mistake. Even Joab understood that. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people. In other words, let God add to the people. A hundredfold. That the eyes of the Lord my king may see it. But why do you want to delight in this numbering? What is your motivation? Why do you want to number the people? So here we have a very bad man, Joab, recognizing a very bad thing, that to number the Israelites at this time, when God had been so merciful to David, when God had brought the dominion covenant to bear upon him, where he was the dominion king, bringing upon him victory after victory after victory, why are you now testing God, numbering the people? This is a bad move. Why look to prove God or to test God? You've got everything. Job then seems to indict David by asserting that This numbering was a prideful thing because David was delighting in seeing how vast his army was. Notice, not the Lord's army. He was delighting to see how great he had become. Now in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 3, Joab also tells David that the numbering of Israel was going to result in a very, very miserable consequence. Notice First Chronicles 21, verse 3. And Job answered, The Lord make this people an hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why then my Lord require this thing? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Now, Job knew that David was in in an era. He was in error. And he knew that if David pushed this agenda, Israel would be held liable for it. It would be a curse upon the entire Israeli people. What Joab failed to recognize, however, is that this is exactly what God wanted. He was chastising Israel. But what made David even consider numbering the people? Why would he even think about that? Was there a precedence for this? Was numbering the army in and of itself a sin? Well, according to Numbers chapter 1, it was God's commandment to number the army of Israel. In Numbers chapter 1, God had commanded Aaron, the high priest, to number the people so that they would be ready for war once they had escaped Egypt. And we read this in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 and following. Notice, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they will come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Notice, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families by the house of their fathers with the number of their names, every male by their poles from 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. This is God's commandment. Numbering is God's commandment. So Aaron then numbered each of the tribes so as to tally up all of the men that were able to go to war from 20 years old and upward. And so there seems to be, at this point, a precedent for the numbering of the people that were able to go to war. David just didn't come up with this out of his mind. He knew there was a precedence for this. In fact, this was a common practice which was acceptable to God because it was commanded by God. But then why, we have to ask, If this was a common practice, why then was David's numbering displeasing to God to the point where he finally brings this dreadful plague upon the people? We should further inquire as to what was the real reason why God was displeased with David. It couldn't be just because he was numbering the people. It wasn't the numbering itself. It had to be something else because the numbering was commonplace. Because the numbering was a common practice. It was commonplace for Israel to do such a thing. So let's consider some of the possibilities. Why numbering at this point in David's life might be a problem? Well, first of all, it was initially the duty of the ecclesiastical magistrates who were specifically commanded to number the people. Notice it was Aaron, not Moses. Moses is the civil magistrate. During wartime, the first officer would address the army, but he would only address the army after the priest. It was his duty to know those who were going to battle, and he would know this by numbering them. So the priest would go forth, he would investigate, he would make sure that those who were going to war were fit for war, and that's why they would number the people. By having the high priest number the people was as if... God himself was numbering the people. We might then surmise that perhaps the numbering was not in David's official capacity. But I really don't think that was the problem. Secondly, the initial numbering took place after Israel's liberation from Egypt when they were discombobulated as a ragtag group of tribesmen. Aaron is organizing the tribes as one body. But you know, David, he already had that organization. Why is he even bothering numbering the people? After the liberation from Egypt, Israel was going to enter into the promised land. They had to be united. But in this point of David's reign, they are united. Perhaps David thought that numbering Israel might be a wise response in order to make sure that they stayed united. The third possibility, when Israel left Egypt, they were frail. Their physical stamina was weak as well as their faith. But not in this case with David. Israel just conquered everybody. Why number the people? Now David had to also know his history. He knew that numbers meant nothing. He knew that. He knew that because he knew his history. God had brought the number of men to a mere 300 to show Gideon and all of Israel that it's not by might but by the Spirit that victories are won. And and David knew that. Why would he need to number the people of Israel? Now, while it may not have been sent to number the armies in principle, David's numbering was obviously displeasing to God to the extent that he was going to bring judgment upon the nation. So we have to ask the question, what was the problem? What was David's sin? Why is he saying, I acted foolishly? Why is he saying, I sinned? Well, first, above all, God wanted David to simply trust him for every and all victories without so much as knowing how many mighty men were numbered in his army. He already proved that to him. God had told David that the numbering of his army would be as the sand of the seashore. He already knew that. David was to take that on faith. His action seems to test God of his word to see if it could be trusted. But I'm not so sure that was David's problem. David's problem was that he wasn't content with the victories. David was not content with all that God had given him. And this is the most important point where I believe David misstepped. And so we have to pause for a minute and ask why? Why would David want to number the people? Why, why at this time, especially after God had given him everything? What did he want more than everything? What did he want to achieve more than that he had already achieved militarily? Well, could it be that he was not satisfied with his dynasty's empire and thought that he should conquer more territories to enlarge his empire. Was not the dynasty that David had enough? Now remember, if you remember back in the Book of the Judges, that during the days of the judges, those judges, after they were victorious, wanted to set up their own dynasty. God frustrated every single judge that tried to set up their own dynasty of their own family line. God refused to allow any of the judges to build their own personal dynasty, since that dynasty, that universal dynasty, was reserved for none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The scope of David's dynasty, it was limited, of course, as far as geographically, but the scope of that dynasty was simply to be a representation of the universal dynasty, the eternal dynasty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was not to be a dynasty, to be David's personal dynasty, nor for his family's dynasty. It was to be a dynasty of Christ's alone, and I believe that's what his sin was. Reverend Adam Clark tends to agree. He says this, quote, David now began to covet an extension of empire and purpose to unite some of the neighboring states with his own. Having given way to this covetous disposition, he could not well look to God for help and therefore wished to know whether the thousands of Israel and Judah might be deemed equal to the conquest which he meditated upon. When God is offended and refuses assistance, vain is the help of man. David's looking to enlarge. But God had given him everything. As we stated before, while this situation was a test for David, it was a chastisement for Israel. Even in the face of Joab's protest, David is committed to having Israel and Judah numbered. We see this in verse 4. Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. So not only is Joab arguing with David, but all the captains of his armies are arguing with David. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Now, once the numbering was completed, Joab brings word again to the king. We read this in 1st Chronicles chapter 21 verse 5. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew sword, and Judah was four hundred threescore and ten thousand men that drew sword. Now, in 1st Chronicles 21, it adds this in verse six that Second Samuel omits, it says, But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Adam Clark once again gives this interesting commentary. He says, The rabbis give the following reason for these two tribes being omitted. Joab seeing this would bring down destruction upon the people, purpose to save two tribes. Should David ask, why have you not numbered the Levites? Joab proposed to say, because the Levites are not reckoned among the children of Israel. They were the priests, they were not the warriors. Should he ask, why have you not numbered Benjamin? He would answer, Benjamin had been already sufficiently punished on account of the treatment of the women at Gebeah. Remember the Gibeonites? They were punished for the Gibeonites. Therefore, this tribe were to be, again, punished, who would remain? You can't punish them again. So even this comment shows that the chronology going from chapter 21 to chapter 24 is proper. So returning to 2 Samuel 24, verse 5, 6, and 7, Joab then goes throughout all the tribes in order to account for how many warriors David had in his army. We read this in verses 5 through 8. Now, the entire census took more than nine months. And only after that entire census is taken, nine months, David is convicted. Interestingly, this is the same time that Bathsheba was with child. After nine months, the child is born and David is approached by Nathan. Interesting account. Now, we're not sure exactly what brought David to his census. It doesn't say that. It doesn't recount But David knew that he had done wrong. All we know is that his heart had convicted him. In his heart, he knew that he had done wrong. We read this in verse 10. And David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now this is a positive thing. This is a wonderful thing. So we see here at this time, of course, after nine months, after making the mistake, he is humbled, he, he is sensitized to his sin, a more sensitive David than during his youth when he had hit his sin for so many months after Bathsheba and the, and the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. But once he's convicted, he does what we all should be doing. Once convicted of our sin, he calls out to God and he accuses himself. He doesn't make any excuses This is on me and on me alone. It's not Joab. Joab shouldn't have listened to me. It's not on the captains. No, it's on me and on me alone. So he admits, he admits that he acted foolishly and he accuses himself before God. And here again, we have a personal directive. Because once we realize that we have sinned, and first and foremost, we know that if we realize that we have sinned, it's only the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that we can even examine ourselves. But once we have examined ourselves, and as we see ourselves falling far short of the glory of God and of the obedience that we are to render back to God, once we realize that we have sinned, we must immediately turn to God in confession, in self-accusation, prayer, and humbling ourselves as we beseech of God's mercy. We should also give thanks. You Think about it. When we are convicted of our sin, we need to bow and give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you have arrested me from going headlong further into oblivion because of my sin. We have to give thanks for God's grace, which enables us to recognize that we have sinned before God since that in and of itself is owned by the grace of God. But if, in fact, David's sin is Coveting more than God had given him, then we need to be warned against our own tendency for covetousness. That's what David's problem was. He wanted more. What more could he want? Well, he wanted more. He just wanted everything. It wasn't enough. He was not content. He was coveting more than God had given him. And that's our problem, too. Just think about what God has given us. Just living in in America is a blessing in itself. As much as we see America falling apart at the seams, it's still a blessing. What more do we want? We have a problem with contentment. And we are warned over and over and over again against our own tendency for covetousness and to seek to establish our own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And that's another warning. How many of us are actually establishing our own kingdom, our own dynasty, and not putting our efforts and our wherewithal and our our time in the building of the kingdom of God? In David's ambition, he wanted to build a dynastic kingdom to continue throughout his generations. Instead of trusting God to build the dynasty, which is the Messiah's dynasty, that continuity of the generations of the Messiah through many generations and throughout many nations, David acted foolishly seeking to create a dynasty of his own. I believe that was his problem. I believe that was his sin. But why would David beg so vehemently for his iniquity to be pardoned? Well, let me put it to you this way. When you sin, why do you want forgiveness? Why do you want forgiveness? When you find out, when you are finally examining yourself, when God grants you the sight of sin, why is it that you ask for forgiveness? You see, too often, we ask for forgiveness so that we would not be condemned Or we're not going to suffer the consequences of our sin. You see, it's all about us. When we ask forgiveness, it's usually, Oh Lord, forgive me because I don't want to be condemned. Oh Lord, forgive me because I don't want the consequences of my sin to come back upon me. Now, while it's true that we don't want to be condemned, we don't want the consequences of our sins to be, to be coming upon us, that is not why we should be asking for forgiveness. We should be asking for forgiveness so that we would be restored to communion with God through Christ. We want restoration of our communion because that, that is the most important thing that we have. Our communion with God through Jesus Christ. So when we ask for forgiveness, we're saying with David, Lord, take not thy communion at the way he puts it is take not thy holy spirit from me don't break communion don't break fellowship forgive me so that we have fellowship once again yes i'm going to bear the brunt of my sin the consequence of my sin but fine that's part of my problem but don't break fellowship that's why we ask for forgiveness we want the presence of god with us over just think about if you don't have the presence of God, let's say you're forgiven of your sin, but you still don't have the communion with God, what good is it? That is the most important thing. So we ask forgiveness so that we would be restored to communion and fellowship with God through Christ. David longed to be restored to union and communion with God and he knew that the only way for that to happen was if his sin was forgiven and so we read in First Chronicles 21, verse 8, And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. You see, it was David's dynastic motivation that displeased God, and not so much the action of numbering the people of Israel. And once he recognized that he had sinned, that his motivation was covetous, that he wanted something more than God had allowed him to have. You know, what we have is what God has given us. Now, that doesn't mean you should want more, but why do you want more? To build your dynasty or to build the kingdom of God? It was David's dynastic motivation, his self-serving dynastic motivation that displeased God and not so much the action of numbering the people of Israel. We shall examine the result of David's sin next when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel, as we see the horrible ravages of the plague that God brings upon Israel as their chastisement and because of David's sin. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of glory of his grace. Amen.